Good morning, Saltbox. Michael is having a well-deserved vacation with Abby and with the kids, so it's great. We hope they'll have a wonderful time. I'm not going to tell you where they are, but uh, they'll be back soon and he'll be here next week. What we're going to do today is we're going to start a new series. And it sounds like it's familiar and comfortable and easy ground because we're going to be tackling the Beatitudes. And in Matthew chapter 5, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. More from Michael next week. I've just got those first two to begin with and to give you the context. You see, when my Jesus sat down to teach, he went up the mountain and then he sat down and addressed the crowds. And... uh, For those of you who come with me to Israel, I'll take you to exactly the spot where Jesus did it. Why am I so certain about the spot? Well, there is a church. And this church looks out over the Sea of Galilee and it's up on top of the hill. And that's where for hundreds of years, everybody has said Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. One thing is absolutely dead certain And that is in all that area, that is the one spot he didn't. It's completely wrong. If you stand up there and try to speak at lunchtime, no one can hear a word. The acoustics are awful and the wind blows. That's the one spot he didn't do it. In fact, the tradition that goes right back uh, to the early first, second, third centuries, is that my Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount two-thirds of the way down the Mount. And he did it with his back to Galilee, looking upwards. And the reason he did it there is the acoustics are magnificent. And you can be heard a hundred yards away. It's the one place that he could have been heard. And perhaps even more important, it's the one place where it's rocky ground, so everybody would have been sitting on rock, not on the crops. So we know that's where Jesus preached it. And it's a lovely, special place, because you can imagine him doing it. When you sit there, you just got the feel that this is where it all happened. And the Sermon on the Mount, or the teaching on the hill, as it's more accurately called, was a very special place, a very special moment, a very special event. And in the last hundred years, a lot of attention has been given to it. We've been given the Lutheran approach. And the Lutheran idea is that this is biblical exposition of the law of the Old Testament designed to drive men and women to find the grace of God. The social reformers of a hundred years ago, men like Washington Gladden and Walter Rauschenbusch, they took the idea that this is where the social gospel was birthed. 
and that what Jesus is teaching is a humanist set of concepts. These are the ideas on which our behaviour was going to be rooted and formed. The third idea that goes around is the dispensationalist approach and that argues that it was for tomorrow, not today, that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. It was for after Israel had repented of her sin, had welcomed Jesus finally, and he could have established his righteousness on earth. So it was postponed until times after today. And that dispensationalist approach says, that's when the Sermon on the Mount was designed for. I want to say that I think all those ideas basically are wrong. My old friend Craig Blomberg puts it in one of his commentaries like this. It's really inaugurated eschatology. You may say, what the heck is inaugurated eschatology? Well, eschatology is from the Greek word eschaton, which simply means the last things. And inaugurated eschatology is eschatology that has been brought into being now. One of the great problems we have with Scripture is Scripture talks about stuff that we know hasn't happened, yet it talks about it as if it's happened already. Well, that's the idea that we really call the now and the not yet of Scripture that it's got a now meaning and it's got a not yet meaning. And the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and the whole idea of eschatology, the idea of last things, talks about what is going to happen rather than what has happened now. But it's actually got a now dimension to it as well. So you can enter into the now of what God is going to perfectly do in the not yet. So it's not as complicated as inaugurated eschatology would sound. It's the now and not yet of Scripture. And what you've got in this idea of the Sermon on the Mount is something that is going to be, but it's meant to be starting now. It's not enough just to postpone it as the dispensationalist idea does. You've got to reckon that God wants us to live that way now. But we know that it's not lived perfectly. So rather than beating up on ourselves, we've got to realise that the perfect fulfilment is postponed to later. So I hope you're still going okay with that much. Let's move on just a bit. And as we move on, I want you to imagine that you're sitting on Eremos Heights. Eremos Heights is what we call the hill um, that goes down to Galilee. That you're sitting there and you're listening to my Jesus and he's talking to the crowds and he's giving them the Beatitudes, talking of despairing of ourselves and our morality, talking of turning in faith to him, talking of learning to live as he lived. The sermon is about what we're going to become and how we're going to live as God's community one day. And yet it's also meant to be pointing us to the fact that we need to get into practice now. 
And we need to start now with realising what God is going to do in us, what God is going to make us, and what it's all going to one day be like. And that's why the teaching on the hill is so important. Not because we get all there and we get all the way there tomorrow, but because we start. And we start on the journey and we start on it today. So as we come and and we look at that, we start with the first of the Beatitudes, as we call them. Now I warn you, I've been softening you up. I've been giving you some of the background because when we start looking at the Beatitudes, familiarity breeds contempt. We think this is safe ground. It's not. It is absolutely scary. It is so, so dangerous. I've been preaching for 50 years. And I know that one of the easiest ways to empty a church is to preach the Beatitudes. Because what my Jesus taught is just not acceptable. You've got to remember that what Jesus did in in John chapter six is he got 10,000 people out there and he preached one sermon and when he'd finished, he'd got 12 left. And one of those was a traitor. He knew how to get rid of people as well as how to draw people. One of the tragedies of the Beatitudes is that they're a great way to get rid of people Because what Jesus says is not really compatible with what we want him to say for one second. We wish he'd behave himself, but he doesn't. The people he's got out there really fall into four groups. One group are the Sadducees. They were the aristocracy, they were the wealthy. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So those of us who suffered theological cemetery um, were taught right from the beginning, that's why they were sad, you see. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you've not got much to go on. The second grouping were the zealots. They were the ones who believed the only good Roman was a dead Roman. The third group were the Essenes. They were the ones who cut themselves off from the world like the Dead Sea Scrolls community at Qumran. They were the ones who hid away and tried to survive. The fourth group were the Pharisees. They were the good guys. I know we don't believe that, but they were the good guys. 200 years before Jesus came, the Sadducees burst on the scene and became the holy ones. They were the ones who withdrew from society So they weren't contaminated or tainted by it. And they tried to live by the law. They tried to fulfill all the commands and the requirements of the faith. And then Jesus comes and he sits down and he starts talking to Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots and Pharisees. And he scares the living daylights out of the lot of them. Because what he comes giving them are the Beatitudes. 
And the Beatitudes are a basic set of statements that you can't live as you want. That it's not doing your thing. He starts off with blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't start off with blessed are the poor. There's nothing special in poverty. It's being poor in spirit. It's being like the guy who was a a publican who poured himself out in prayer, who Jesus talked about, the guy who didn't think he was worthy to come before God. And there's a Pharisee who thinks he's too good for this God he's talking to. But it's the publican who thinks he's not good enough, who Jesus points to as having actually got it right. Being poor in spirit means being like the publican. It means knowing that you're not good enough. It means knowing that you can't do it your way. Means not fulfilling the rules as you see them. Means not living by the standards you think. It means not actually expecting God to comply with how you think it ought to be done. Now, that means not telling God how to do it, but letting God tell you how to do it. And the tragedy for so many of us is that right now in the year 2020, we want to tell God how it should be and not let God tell us what it should be like. We're trying to tell God that you can't have this and you mustn't do that and nothing must be like this. Well, that's the Pharisees revisited. And the reality of what God is after from us is not people who are going to tell God what he needs, but listen to what he requires from us. And that's really painful and really difficult because it requires a humility. It requires an openness. It requires being ready for God to surprise us and to do it as we wouldn't do it. Are you with me how dangerous this is? You start letting God say what it's going to be like and you're going to find he disagrees with you. For me, when I came and and met Jesus over 50 years ago, He gave me a word that I've never forgotten. And the word was surrender. He was not going to surrender to me. I needed to surrender to him. That meant he wasn't going to do it as I would do it. And I needed to catch up with him, not wait for him to catch up with me. I found that incredibly difficult because I found that God didn't vote like I voted. I found that God didn't speak like I spoke. I found that God didn't agree with everything that I felt. And I found that some of those things that were most precious to me, he really didn't agree with. I found that relationships that were very special to me disintegrated under his hand. 
I found that ways of living that were really important to me were banned by him. And I found that being poor in spirit meant being submissive to Jesus, meant doing what he told me, meant no longer telling God what he was supposed to be doing, meant living in submission and surrender. It was a really nasty set of shocks, especially when I got to theological seminary because I found that most of the people there I didn't like because they weren't living like I lived and they didn't think like I thought. Now, God has this wonderful sense of humour and he's got a marvellous way of providing what you need and he actually gave me a girlfriend who I could get on with, which is a good thing because after 48 years of marriage, I should get on with her. But her father was the president of the seminary. So we did have some difficult moments at the start. It's ever so important to be poor in spirit, to let God tell you what he wants, to live in obedience to him, to live in his world his way, to not tell him everything that he's going to believe and actually to handle it when he disagrees with you. And it's not easy to do. Just before coming to live in the US, what was uh, nearly 25 years ago, we were going to have an election in Britain. One of my closest friends was the head of the party that Ruth and I had never voted for. And we sat down with he and his wife for one of our regular meals. And he said, I'm going to tell you when the election is going to be. He said, I've fixed the date. So he was the head of the party for the four countries. He said, I've fixed the date and it's going to be May the 1st, 1997. I said, you know you're not supposed to tell me that. I said, you know I've never voted for your party. He said, no, I know that. But I also know that you love Jesus more than you're committed to what you believe about how you vote. And he was absolutely right. Neither Ruth nor I ever broke that confidence. We prayed through gritted teeth that God would bless our friend and his party. But the great, great thing about all this is that you've got to be poor in spirit. You've not got to be rising up and telling God what's right and what's wrong. You've got to be listening, coming under instruction and under direction. And then the second of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And that doesn't mean blessed are those who are sad. It means blessed are those who've got broken hearts. Blessed are those who don't know how they're going to get through tomorrow. Blessed are those 
who mourn and who can handle the fact that it's not going to work out as they would want. It's an amazing statement because they're going to be comforted by God. I think the idea that we're supposed to be poor in spirit, conceding the territory to God, and then recognising that we're going to have broken hearts, not prosperity at every drop of the hat, that we're not going to get everything that we would expect, that we'll probably lose everything that we thought we might deserve. But the wonderful thing is that God comforts us, takes us through. I like Joe Namath. I always did. I'm old enough to remember uh, in the twilight years of the baseball star. And I was amazed when he started doing adverts on TV for Medicare. But I didn't like the adverts. I liked him. I just didn't like the way he said, you need to get what you deserve. Because I thought, I'm not sure I deserve anything. Theologically, we're not in the deserving category. We're in the category of those who need to see the grace of God at work and surrender to that grace. And I wish Joe Namath would say, I want you in a position to receive everything you need, not what you deserve, because I don't deserve. One of the tragedies of our lives is that they're not full of what we deserve. I had a friend who was Hutu, by tribe. And when the genocide broke out in Rwanda, he took 27 of the Tutsi and sheltered them in the home of he and his wife. Years later, people came for him to get their own back. And he had to flee with his wife and his kids for his life. Did he deserve that? No. Did God comfort him and keep him? Yes. But it's hard. We have got so many odd ideas about being Christians. If you've lost everything, if everything's gone wrong, if there's just pain and disappointment in your heart, that doesn't mean you've missed it with God. It probably means you found it. Because God wants to take people who have nothing and give them everything they need direct from Him. We need so much to realise that it's the poor in spirit that God wants. Those who've got broken hearts and are open to Him. I wonder if I asked you if you could remember the last time my home country, my old country, I'm an American and proud of it, but my old country, Britain. I wonder if you could remember the last time we went to war 
because the last time the British went to war was against Argentina, which is not the most demanding conflict that had ever been imposed upon the British. Uh, and it had got its, its difficulties because Argentina had only ever had one war in the 20th century. And that lasted for four days and was against Chile. But when Britain and Argentina went to war over the Falkland Islands, I was head of the British Evangelical Churches for the four countries of Britain. And so I got dispatched with a friend of mine to go and attempt to negotiate peace. Because nobody else was going to do it. So the churches got on with it. And so we flew from Britain to the States and then from the States down into Latin America. And what was happening was there was a conference going on in Panama. And the Argentinian church leaders were all there. So my friend and I arrived in Panama. And we came bringing rolls of wallpaper. And these rolls of wallpaper had all been signed by thousands and thousands and thousands of British Christians. And they'd all written messages to their Argentinian brothers and sisters. All saying, we're not asking that you're going to beat us, but we are asking that God's going to help you. And particularly because we've got more experience of the aftermath of war than you do that God's going to give you grace and understanding in how to minister to your people and bring them to Jesus in the middle of the conflict. What they'd also done was they'd taken an offering. And my friend Ian and I went with thousands of dollars to take to the Argentinian Christians only for the purpose of running a conference only to train their folks in how to minister to the aftermath of bereavement and loss and only to try and rebuild the Argentinian church, whatever happened in the conflict. So you can imagine what happens when we arrive in Panama. There's this conference. Praise God, there was a conference of all sorts of Latin nations because the Argentinians didn't even want to see us. But... The other country said, no, you've got to see them. They've come halfway around the world to see you. They've not come to try and rub your nose in it or anything else. They've come to pray with you. So do it. So we had a night of praying with the Argentinians. It was the only meeting between British church leaders and Argent uh, between British leaders of any kind and Argentinian leaders during the whole of the conflict. The politicians never met, but the churches did. Relationships were forged there that have never died. The conference took place and there was a lot of ministry to Argentinian church leaders. A lot of opportunity for them to learn what to do in a situation they had never experienced that the British sadly had much experience of. And they began to realise that they, we were one body in Christ Jesus. And we could minister to each other. But you've got to be poor in spirit to take gifts to your enemy and to minister to them. You've got to have a broken heart to be ready to meet people in their need 
and be more worried about that than you are about your own. You've got to be open to the power of a living God to allow Him to come and bring comfort through you to your enemies. It is so important that we recognise that there is a phrase in America today that we need to lose. Now I'm going to get into real trouble. We need to lose the phrase, it's my right. You don't have any rights. When you surrendered to Jesus, they died on the cross with him. It's not your rights, it's your privileges that he died to give you. And therefore you've got to give them back into his hands and let him have the rights and the privileges and the power and the perspective. Let him have you in your weakness and your frailty and your pain and your need. And realise that what we need in America today is not a people rising up with what they've got, but opening up with what they don't have for the one who can give us everything we need. The Beatitudes are. It's a nice little phrase, but actually it's not a very good one. They're not beatitudes. They're the beautiful attitudes. They're the things that God gives his people to blow the mind of the world. It's the capacity he gives you to love your enemy, to do good to those who despitefully use you, to bless those who hate you, to minister to the needs of those who you would normally have no time for. Blessed are the poor in spirit who are not trying to build themselves up. Blessed are those who mourn because God can comfort those of us who are open for him to do what he would with us and ready for him to take us and use us. Man, if you knew how hard this message is to bring, if you knew how hard it is to try and give it to you, have you ever thought that I knew exactly what some of the reactions would be? But brothers and sisters, this is what my Jesus said on Eremos Heights at the start of his ministry to his people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn because those are the ones that God can take and use and minister through. Have you noticed there's an election coming? Have you noticed there's a little amount of discomfort in our country? Have you noticed that not everybody is agreeing with everybody else? Have you noticed that people are beating up on each other and worse? It is time that the church rose up and did something different. I remember going with a friend to be the only peace party from my country to our enemies. I know what it feels like, but that's what God calls us to do in the way we pray, we speak, 
we behave. Brothers and sisters, we need to be doing things for one another with whom we disagree in such a way that the world's jaw drops open and they see my Jesus working in his people. God bless you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that it's truth, especially when we don't like it, and especially when it's a struggle. Help us, Lord. Help us to be those who would go to a cross and be crucified with Christ. Help us to be those who would die to ourselves, that we may truly live for you. Help us to be those ready to minister to those we disagree with. Help us to be those who love our enemies, who do good to those who despitefully use us. Help us, Lord, to be your people. In Jesus' name. Help us, Lord, above all, to be those who mourn and yet let you comfort us. And to be those who are poor in spirit. And let you build us up, never those trying to do that for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.